Happy New Year, podcasters, and welcome to episode 14 of our Banking Litigation Podcast. Today, Kerry and I are joined by Harriet Tolkien, an associate uh, who specialises in banking litigation. Um, welcome, Harriet. Um, we're kicking off, I think, on loss and damages uh, today. Harriet, I think you're going to start with the case of UCP and Nectris, is that right? Thanks, John. That's right. Um, in this case, the High Court considered the principle of reflective loss. And could you remind our uh, podcasters what that principle is, please? Yes, of course. As a reminder, this is the rule which says that where a shareholder has suffered a loss by reason of the diminution in the value of its shareholding in a company, this is just a reflection of the loss suffered by the company, which means that only the company, and not the shareholder, can sue for the loss caused by any breach of duty owed to the company. And this can be a pretty tricky obstacle for shareholders to overcome, uh, as we saw in the recent Lloyds and HBOS judgment. That's exactly right. Lloyds and HBOS is a good example of this principle at work. The court concluded that any difference between the value of pre-acquisition HBOS shares and post-acquisition shares would not have been recoverable by individual shareholders, but instead by Lloyds itself, because of the principle of reflective loss. The decision in UCP and Nectris, however, suggests that shareholders could avoid this kind of bar on their claims simply by selling their shares before bringing a claim. I find it difficult to see how that can be right, actually. It seems to suggest quite a strange loophole so that shareholders could sell their shares before issuing the claim to avoid the reflective loss principle and then possibly buy them back again, I suppose. Yes, and that's exactly what the defendant argued, but the court did not agree with the unfortunate result that it could lead to double jeopardy, with claims being brought both by the company and by a former shareholder, which is is exactly what the reflective loss principle is supposed to prevent. It is worth noting, though, that the question arose here in the context of a corporate business structure, considering the claim of a corporate shareholder, rather than in relation to investor shareholders in a listed company. So perhaps the court would have reached a different conclusion if it had considered the question in a different context. Mm. Nevertheless, the decision does seem uh, ripe uh, for challenge to me. Uh, Kerry, we're going to keep an eye on the progress of the appeal. Yeah, it's on our tracker and I will keep you all updated. Excellent. Okay, please do. And thank you very much for the update, Harriet. Moving on to the umbrella topic of uh, duties owed by banks. Two long-running cases have given us plenty to discuss this month. Uh, I'll deal with the first and uh, carry the second. The first is um, the case of Standish against RBS, which many of you will be familiar with. This current case is about the nature of fiduciary duties owed by shadow directors as opposed to de jure directors of a company. There's no need to delve too much into the underlying facts of the case because they're not necessary to understand the key conclusions on the court on the question of a shadow directorship. Um, All you really need to know is that the lending bank, RBS, stepped in when its customer defaulted uh, under the loan and the customer said that the actions taken by the bank constituted a shadow director of the company. The customer then argued that the bank had acted in breach of fiduciary duties in its capacity as a shadow director. So the bank applied to strike out the claim and it was successful before Chief Master Marsh. The claimant, Standish, then appealed to a judge. So we're looking here at the decision of a High Court judge on appeal. There were originally a bundle of other allegations, but only the claim based on shadow directorship was granted permission to appeal. Because Standish arose in the context of an interim application for strikeouts, the court had to assume that the claimant would be able to make out its claim that the bank constituted a shadow director. In other words, it took the claimant's case at its highest. 
The question for the court was therefore what duties the uh, a shadow director owes. Does it, in other words, owe all of the general duties to the company that a de jure or formally appointed director owes? Or was the content of its duty more limited? Uh, you'll all recall that the duties of uh, formally appointed directors are, of course, codified in the Companies Act 2006. And have there been any decisions on shadow directors since the Act came into force? Uh, a few, but not many. In fact, there haven't been many cases in shadow directors full stop. And have any of them dealt with this question specifically? Yes, and the more common result in these decisions uh, has been to the effect that a shadow director only owes duties in respect of the directions or instructions which constituted it, it a shadow director. And the course in Standish followed this recent trend and said it was quite clear, looking at both the wording of the Act and on more recent authorities, that the full range of fiduciary duties owed by a formally appointed director are not imposed on a shadow director. So this means we now have clear guidance from the High Court that a shadow director's duties are limited to the aspects of the company's business or affairs which were affected by his directions or instructions. So this sounds like a pretty helpful decision from the perspective of lending banks generally, and particularly actually those advancing funds to SMEs. Yeah, I, I think that's right. This will give some comfort to financial institutions, certainly, even if they or their subsidiaries, employees or representatives are found to have been a shadow director of a customer, this will not mean that the bank then automatically owes all of the duties of a de jure director. And importantly, this means that the shadow director will not automatically owe a duty to act in the best interests of the company uh, rather than the institution's own interests. Instead, the, the court will need to undertake a qualitative assessment of any specific directions or instructions that the financial institution gave and consider the duties which ought to attach to them. If the directions or instructions were limited to particular acts of the company or areas of its business, the duties of the institution will be limited to that extent. What about situations where the shadow directors broadly apply commercial pressure but aren't actually involved in giving instructions? That's a very interesting question, Harriet, and it often uh, crops up in practice. The current decision, Standish, uh, clarified that there must be a specific direction or instruction as opposed to broad commercial pressure. The court emphasised that commercial pressure was not the same as giving an instruction or direction, so the status of a shadow directorship couldn't follow from some general commercial pressure. So as I said, overall, a very helpful decision giving useful guidance and comfort to financial institutions. It's worth having a read at the blog post on this decision, and you'll find the link in the show notes. As I said, that's the first of uh, two uh, large cases we want to talk about this month. We're going to stick with the theme of duties owed by banks as Kerry takes us through our deep dive this month, which is, I believe, a decision arising from the Tesco shareholder class action. Kerry, can you please tell us why you've selected this judgment? Yes, of course. Thanks, John. So, as you say, this is the latest in a line of judgments in the long-running shareholder class action against Tesco. As a reminder, this is a Section 90A FISMA claim relating to false and misleading statements allegedly made by Tesco regarding its commercial income and trading profits in 2014. So this particular judgment is on disclosure and it raises various interesting points, both for shareholder class actions generally and also for just litigation in a more wider general context. So the first point I'm going to look at is about whether privilege uh, was lost in relation to a solicitor's note of a client interview that was referred to during a criminal trial held in public, uh, which might sound surprising on the face of it. 
So time for some background facts. You might remember that in addition to the civil claims against Tesco, there were criminal proceedings arising from the same facts against three former Tesco directors. It was in the context of those criminal proceedings that the solicitor's note was disclosed to the SFO by Tesco um, under a limited waiver of privilege. It was then referred to by the SFO in open criminal court and parts of it were summarised and quoted from. So the note was of an interview between a senior in-house lawyer at Tesco and Tesco's external lawyers in which the in-house lawyer gave the first account of what she knew of the commercial income issues at the time. So Tesco naturally wanted to assert privilege over this document in the civil shareholder claim. The claimants, on the other hand, argued that the note had lost its confidentiality when it was deployed in open court, and therefore it was no longer privileged. Right, so I'm guessing the court was concerned about cherry-picking if only certain parts of the note had been disclosed, right? Well, actually, no. So there was no contention that the note had been deployed in a way that might give an unfair or misleading impression, which might have brought the cherry-picking rule into play. The question, in fact, for the court here was slightly different. It had to consider whether confidentiality had been lost so as to result in a total loss of privilege. So the court ultimately refused the application, so Tesco did not have to produce the note. Um, It emphasised that the question of what court documents may be accessed by members of the public is ultimately within the discretion of court, and that it would have to balance the principle of open justice against the protection of private interests, including confidentiality. And so it accepted that in some cases, a reference to a document in open court may give it sufficient publicity so as to destroy its confidentiality. But it said this is a question of fact and degree. And on the facts, the references made in the criminal proceedings did not amount to a loss of confidentiality in the document itself. So I'm then going to move on, move us on to the second point now, which arose from a separate application made by Tesco for the claimants to produce documents to show that they had actually relied on the defective publications when making their investment decisions. And here the court granted the order in favour of Tesco. So the claimants are going to have to search for and produce evidence to prove that each of them individually relied on Tesco's 2014 statements. So this is a very interesting decision, as it suggests that in Section 90A FISMA claims, claimants will have to prove individual reliance, making future shareholder class actions under Section 90A more difficult to pursue. Yeah, and we discussed in the uh, last podcast, episode 13, how proving individual reliance is notoriously tricky um, for claimants in a group shareholder action to overcome, very different to America or Australia. Yeah, indeed. And if you remember, this was one of the points on which the shareholders failed in the Lloyds H. Boss litigation before the English court. Whereas in the Meyer shareholder class action in Australia, as you've identified, the court accepted a market-based causation theory. Yeah, well, I, I won't hijack your summary of the decision, but in, in Meyer, the court found that the claimants uh, did not need to prove individual reliance on the misleading statement and could rely on the fact that misleading information was baked into uh, market share price, if you like. Yeah, exactly. But market-based causation has not yet been accepted in the UK. And in fact, Section 90A um, FISMA is worded very differently to the equivalent Australian statutory provision. So there are good reasons for this. 
Anyway, the upshot is that this case confirms, albeit in the context of an interim application, that in Section 90A claims, the claimant shareholders must show actual reliance on an individual basis. It sounds like it could potentially be a mammoth task to obtain those documents, particularly where there is a large group of claimants. Presumably, this all adds to the cost of shareholder class actions. Yeah, absolutely. So if exhausted searches for documents such as these are ordered, it's going to get pretty expensive for the claimant, for the shareholders and litigation funders who typically support these sorts of claims. It's very interesting. Thanks for that, Kerry. Um, and there are, in fact, two blog posts uh, on this decision, one uh, on the privilege point and one on the reliance point in Section 98 claims. Uh, links to uh, each of those are in the show notes. Right, to round off our bumper edition today, Harriet, I think you're going to take us uh, through a costs case, which is probably more exciting than it sounds. Uh, Yes, John. I hope so. This is King and City of London Corporation, a Court of Appeal case concerning the ever-important Part 36. It's not beginning well, Harriet, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we're about to get more exciting. The focus of this judgment was on interest in Part 36 offers, and specifically whether interest can be excluded. And the answer from the Court of Appeal is, in a word, no. An offer which is made exclusive of interest cannot be a valid Part 36 offer. So this is a welcome clarification from the Court of Appeal, as there have been conflicting first instance decisions on this point. So the issue here is the interpretation of CPR Rule 36.54, which provides that a Part 36 offer will be treated as inclusive of all interest until the expiry of the relevant period. Now, in some cases, the courts have treated this as a deeming provision, meaning that if the offer is silent on interest, it will be deemed to include it. On this basis, a party could then exclude interest if it chose to, effectively overriding the deeming provision. But in other cases, the courts have said that Part 36 imposes a mandatory requirement that the offer includes interest. Now, that's not to say that it must state that it includes interest, but it means that an offer to settle which expressly excludes interest is invalid and outside the scope of Part 36. And it is this second interpretation that the court in the King case has confirmed to be correct. Okay, I see. Um, So what are the practical takeaways of of the case? Well, very obviously, this means that parties making Part 36 offers should make sure they do not state that it is exclusive of interest. Told you it was interesting. Mm. There is a real danger that it will not be a valid Part 36 offer, if so, which of course means that it would not give effective cost protection, contrary to their intention. Conversely, it may also be prudent to confirm expressly that the offer is inclusive of interest. And then the second point is that to ensure effective cost protection, when calculating the amount to be offered, parties should take into consideration any interest that might be awarded if the claim is not settled and proceeds to trial up to the end of the relevant period. I see. Otherwise, the offer might be pitched lower than was intended. Precisely which for a claimant might mean that they lose out financially if the offer is accepted. And for a defendant, it might mean that the offer does not give effective costs protection. Helpful practical tips, Harriet. Thank you. And I believe we have a blog post on this? Yes, there is a link in the show notes. Well, thank you, Harriet. And indeed, thank you, uh, Kerry, as well. Thank you both for your contribution and in particular to our guest speaker, Harriet, this morning. As ever, as Harriet and Kay have noted throughout, uh, please look at the show notes for more uh, analysis on each of these decisions and links to our blog posts. And don't hesitate to contact us if you have any questions. Until we speak again on episode 15, all the very best from all of us, from me, from Kerry. Goodbye. And from Harriet. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye.